Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Traverse Theatre Edinburgh. We now join the theatre's associate director and your host, Hamish Peary. to December's Travcast. The Travcast is our monthly writer's salon where I get the amazing opportunity to sit opposite a playwright, look into their wild eyes and learn about the craft of playwriting and what it's like to live as a playwright. And sitting in front of me today, very excitingly, is a man who was born in Girvan in 1974. Uh, His plays include This Bag Magnet, Decky Does a Bronco, Helmet, If the Joy is True. And let's also remember Decky Does a Bronco has had its 10th year anniversary production recently. And we're really excited that uh, we will be producing with Oren Moore, a respectable widow takes to vulgarity in our spring season. I'd like to welcome Douglas Maxwell. Hello. Hello, Douglas. How are ho, you? Ho, ho, Merry Christmas. <laughs> and it's a bearded man with a Merry Christmas. So that's really exciting. I can carry it off. Yeah. Yeah. Not got the girth for it, but... Well, I haven't got my fat suit on. Apologise. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, for those of you listening, Hamish and I are stark naked at the minute. <laughs> <laughs> Joyfully. <laughs> and it's quite warm, which yeah, is really... Yeah, that's, for those that's, and that's why. That's, yeah, that's the otherwise, only reason. Uh, otherwise. Why we ever do it. <laughs> so, playwriting. Yes. When you... If you were to look back on your childhood, can you remember a moment where you, you think, oh, that's someone that wants to tell a story in some way, or was writing, or... I don't know. I, I was never one of those kids that wrote. I, it dawned on me that you were allowed to be a playwright when I was at university. It's very often people ask playwrights, did you see a production? What was it you saw that made you want to be a writer? I think it's rare that people come into theatre like that. I think normally people are already doing it out of some kind of personal impulse... And then they realise, oh, no, wait a minute, you can make a living at this. You do it in school, or you do it student drama, or you do it amateur dramatics, and you, you know you want to have something to do with show business, but you don't know why or what bit. And that was what happened to me during university life. It, it was kind of winnowed down through inability, all the other things. Not good enough as an actor, not the temperament to be a director. And then in my final year, I wrote, uh, my, for my English degree at Stirling, I wrote an adaptation of Confessions for Justified Sinner. The James Hogg book and staged it with my own little theatre company and uh, that was it suddenly dawned on me what if I said to people I could do this was going to be my job because like most people at uni I had no idea what I was going to do when I graduated I'd read an interview with Jack Nicholson who'd said that he was going to dedicate his 20s to being an actor a full time 20s and it, by the time he got to 30 if he hadn't made it he'd give up he was young enough at 30 to drive something else and that sounded really exciting I thought I'm going to do that you know I graduated when I was 20, just turning 21. And uh, obviously everyone was really delighted that I wasn't going to get a full-time job and I wasn't going to do this. And, uh, but that was kind of where I remember a moment sitting writing with music on in my room, glass of wine, and it dawning on me that I could... What if? How cool would this be? It wasn't just the writing. It was that I was taking it into a rehearsal room that night and actors were going to be there and were going to muck about with it and it was going to come alive. That was part of it. That's the that's how you get you know diverted in the stream of what type of writer you are, whether you're in the show business side of things or whether you're a, a lonely writer that you want to write perfection, you know, novelists, poetry, 
it's it's absolutely exquisite perfection. It's carved in stone. It's never altered. It goes up on the shelf, a masterpiece. No such thing with theatre. You know, we're carved in sand. You know, we have to make it happen. It has to be made out. You know, my comparison I always use is musical. Like the novel is Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. You know, that's it. That is a masterpiece for the ages. Can't be beaten. Whereas playwriting, we are more like the Who. You know, a lot messier, ups, down, all over the place. We're louder, but Jesus Christ, we're good live. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's where that's where we live. You know, it's a rock and roll thing. We play to an audience and out we go and we're we troubadours and we move on and we all these things. So that was what happened. I think I'm one of those lucky people where my job suits my personality like a absolutely like a bespoke suit. It's I like to be alone an awful lot for, you know, 80% of my life I'd, I'd just like to be alone. But that other 20, I don't just want to be in the company of one or two people. I want a big crowd. I want an audience. I'm better with an audience, in fact, than I am one-on-one. And I love rehearsals. I love the performance. I love the adrenaline rush of a play. I love all, I love everything about it. You know, I'm, I'm saying that now. I'm not in rehearsals. If you asked me during rehearsals, I'd be thinking about doing another job. You know, that horrible terror that comes on you. The only thing, back to your question, which was about in childhood or something, I think, when I think back to my childhood, I think of a, the, the area of where Decaders of Broncos set, which was a council estate in Girvan where I grew up, and where I played in those swings and those houses. I was in the middle, always. I've no idea what class I am. <laughs> you know, those of us who work in theatre were classless and have been since ancient Greece and before. We were neither one nor the other, and we welcome in all classes. We, we take outcasts, that's how our business works. But when I was wee and playing, I was considered upper class. Living in a council house, I was born in a council flat, living in a council, tiny wee council house, because my mum and dad were teachers. And I, was, I had to go in early, and I didn't swear. I wasn't allowed to be a milk boy. I never quite got over that. <laughs> all my pals were milk boys, and they had money in their pocket by the time they were nine, you know? But I did ride on the back of the milk. Yeah, jump on a moving vehicle. But I was a, I was the kind of, I was the posh one. So there was lots of kind of you go and talk to them, Douglas. will listen to you. Your dad's a teacher. You know, there was lots of that. And then my dad got promoted in his work, and we moved around the corner to a house we owned when I was ten, and we had a car which was unheard of. You know, so I went to university thinking that not only was I middle class, I thought I was upper class, <laughs> you know, until I went to university and found out that no, coming from Girvan alone marked you out as something else. And I've always been in that middle ground, in between two groups of friends or more, you know, a foot in both camps, a middleman. That is the position of the narrator, always. You know, that's who narrates the story, that's who gets to tell. Plus, I exaggerate, naturally which is a storytelling thing. But my storytelling form that I write in is always theatre. I've never written anything, ever. You know, I've never written screenplay, novel, short story, poem, you name it, radio play, nothing. It's purely theatre writing that I do. It's just a natural fit for me, you know. And that's because of that live element? It must be. It's just I love it so much. And, it, I, you know, I can't give it up. The dream for someone like me is to make it to being an old man and... My ultimate ambition is to have written a truly great comedy and a truly dr- great tragedy. You know, I've started on the comedy. I write sad plays, which is kind of getting your first foot on the bus of tragedy. <laughs> but I've never. I'm, I'm ho- that's something I'm going to move towards. So that's that. My I'm working on a very old school model of what I want to do with my work. 
you know, that's, and that's how it goes. A lot of it's inability. It's like back to not being able to be an actor. Everyone would want to be an actor. And we've all tried it. You know, everyone who's involved in theatre has, or has to, have tried acting. It's the only thing you have to try and do. And then those of us that aren't very good at it get to find ourselves in positions of power where we get to boss actors around, you know. True. <laughs> <laughs> he says awkwardly. Yeah. So talk to you about that. You talked about the excitement and then the fear of rehearsals. Yeah. You really stopped and went, but when... When I'm in rehearsals, I really hate it. What is it about the... the well, when I'm in rehearsals, I love it. Matt, the way I work in rehearsals, normally in Scotland, we'll get three weeks, maybe three and a half weeks rehearsal for any play. The first week is all... A, by that point, you'll have worked on the script, draft after draft, with the director or with a literary manager, with a dramaturg. So it'll be... Normally, in my work, it'll be draft five, draft six, it'll say on that day. That could be years that's taken you to that point. But that first week is everyone getting their head round the script and maybe rewriting, and I'm in the room that week, and I'm uh, very present, and I'll be writing at night, and I'm bringing it in. The next week, I'm absent. I'm not there. Never. Hardly ever. No matter, and then the third week, I turn up, hiya, pals, it's me from the olden days. You know, and by this point, all rehearsals have fallen to bits in the third week. You know, every, nobody's speaking to each other, it's all horrible. And I come in and cheerlead it towards the end, and don't seem to be doing much work. Just popping in and out, you know and just making sure things are okay and doing some press and whatever it needs to be. Secretly dying inside, you know, lots of late-night conversations with directors. Then it moves into the part where the director has handed it over. In that interim, by the way, the director has taken the play. It's not mine anymore, it's the director's. Then the director, as you know, hands it to the actors. That's the process. Make sure this belongs to them. And by the time I turn up to see tech runs and dress, it's the actor's play, you know? And I'm so far back that all I have to do is kind of be a face, you know. It's too late for me to go, nah, this isn't working, because that'll take the wheels off it. So I tend to be the guy that's kind of, especially by the time it opens, I'm in the foyer. <laughs> you know, I'm the guy standing there, kind of meeting old ladies and people recognising my picture from the, the little clippings on the, the door and all that, and having to be some kind of face of it, because the actors are in the the dressing room and green room and the director's nowhere to be seen you know so there's this kind of horrible being the face of the production that's where the terror comes in because you know as a director we never get that feeling actors get when the show's up and running when it's on actors calm actors settle into a kind of confidence that they know whatever happens it'll be fine I'll deal with it they can both be in the room and remembering who they are and acting it all happens under the lights some kind of magic happens we are not we are football managers on the sideline you know, you want to get out your dog. You've forgotten the flowers. Get back, get back, track back. You know, you're shouting and screaming and waving. It makes no difference. The actors are up and doing it. So that's where the terror comes in. And everyone, that process to the terror isn't the end. Because no matter how it goes, there's a release. You know, there is an adrenaline rush comes every single time. Which is why it's a very empowering model to teach with young people. And a very important thing. Because that journey gives you such a sense of the worth of risk, what a risk it is. And the risk we have when we put plays on is the risk of public humiliation, which is a huge risk. That's why we're so tense sometimes. And that's why we can be quite tricky people. Because what we're putting on this online is that everyone's going to think we've wasted their time and made a fool of ourselves and we're going to get slagged off in the paper our parents read. You know, that's humiliating. That's what's at, at stake. Somebody once said to me about bad reviews, well, look, they don't kill you. And part of me thought, no, 
they don't kill you immediately. They do kill you. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, ta they're taking years off my life at the end. You know, they're not kidding. I won't drop down dead now. You know, but there's something in that terror of, of watching a show when it's not working and you think, this is, this is what's going on my death certificate. You know, <laughs> <laughs> death by really poor production. <laughs> and you're a man that's written, you know, in excess of 17 at minimum, my last time counting, more than that plays. And does it get better? That terror that you're able you to manage it? Because you're able to articulate it now in you a can, sort of you objective can, way. You can process it and you can deal with it. And there's certain ways of working that you, you taper and tailor to make sure, to try and eliminate it, to play to the odds of it usually works best when A, BC happens and and you start to pick up certain signs, but no, the fear doesn't go away, the f and the, the kind of humiliation of it and the embarrassment of it, eh, it doesn't it, it doesn't go away. But the payoff's still there, you know, the excitement of it. Like certain things that that I do, which is in my process of writing, that I've changed over the eh, 12, 13 years I've been professional, is that I've found that I don't work well when I'm given a blank commission. Write a blank play for next March. You know, you've got a year and a half, anything you want, and it's going on, right? That shuts down my little cottage industry. I have never been able to deliver the goods on that, never. So I, now I work to, I go away and work an idea up from a synopsis to a workbook with my notes in it. Maybe even start the play, sometimes finish the play before anyone knows it exists. And I then go and shop it around and say, I think you might be interested in it, and you might be this. And it, sometimes it's just the idea, the concept, but often when a director's hearing about it or a producer's hearing about it, it's I've had four or five months on that idea before because sometimes you get that far into an idea and realise it's going nowhere. Right. You, know? so you make sure you wouldn't just go with, an, with a rough idea, you'd make sure you've developed it a bit before you even start... But it's an idea that I want to write first. Now, sometimes you can't really do that because a young, small company is only getting money to do one production. They'll have one slot and an autumn slot or a very small theatre company, and they, they need you to sign on to do a musical or a comedy for a small tour or something so that they get the money. You know, that'll help them in one way, and that's where it all gets very tricky. But I, maybe because the first three plays you mentioned there, Airbad Magnet, Helmet, and Decatur's Bronco, were pre-written. They were written before the first one went on. They were unsolicited scripts. I was three, always three plays ahead. You know, so there was always a feeling that I'd already had a year and a half writing other plays before my first play went on, that I, I, I had work that I wanted to push. Now, it's not always happened like that. Sometimes things have ground to a halt and I've had to write on spec. But, for instance, I worked with uh, Random Accomplice and they'd commissioned me, the first time they commissioned me was a blank commission to write a comedy and I'd thought of writing this thing called Humbug Christmas Stories and all these things, little tiny Christmas stories, and it, it just was a, it was a cul-de-sac. It was going nowhere. And I had to come back to them, head in hands, and say, it's no good. I'm sorry. And, but they're sitting there with this tour booked, you know, and this is happening. And that was where I gave them Promises, Promises, which was the show that went on and was a big hit for them because that was a bottom drawer play. It was, right. I'd written for myself on an impulse, and then it goes to the bottom drawer. And then I'm a big believer in this, that writers need to write. I don't. I, I tell people, thinking about it and talking about it is work, but I don't really believe it. I like to sit at the desk and have something happening, 
Really, right. You don't just that little moment on your own doesn't count. It needs to well, be. It does, it does count. And a lot, it's for different things for different writers. But for me, I need to be working on something or else my kind of my normal life falls to bits. So I work on, like, for instance, in the last year, I've, ch- I've decided a couple of years ago I had 10 shows on in 14 months of various different standards youth theatre to National Theatre Scotland, NT Connections in London, and a lot of different things. And I saw my work with lots of different audiences and got quite match fit, I think, because playwrights don't often get to see the variety of audiences and variety of plays and start to really think about what is it the audiences like about my work and what don't they like. And I got to that place, but I thought, I'm just doing too much. It's too... I'm churning out. I need to step up now. So in the last year, last year's motto was fewer but bigger. So I'm doing one serious piece, which is for the citizens, and one big comedy for the NTS. And that was all I was going to work on all year. It didn't quite work out like that because you hand, I'd forgotten you hand those plays in and, you know, these are busy people. They don't respond for three months. <laughs> so you're sitting twiddling your thumbs. So in those, those big gaps, I would still be writing sketches, parodies, monologues, preparing a big idea, trying to find something that happens. And one of those was A Respectable Widow Takes to Vulgarity. So when Orla asked me, did I have a play that was, did I want to write a dream play, which is a blank commission? I said, no, <laughs> but I have this. It's 40 minutes long. And that was, so that's how it tends to go with that kind of thing. And I've got, there's a kind of theatrical karma to that. It'll, these plays will find their home right, okay. if they're good enough, you know. And, and but sometimes it's just to keep the keep things going. I was really into Pinter in that space in the summer. I was reading everything he did, and I thought I would write a little scene for myself in the style of Pinter, and I wrote it. And I was thinking, well, that's quite that's quite a good. It's quite captive. I'll just tinker with that wee bit, and I tinkered and tinkered. Two days later, it was a wee Douglas Maxwell mini play. <laughs> there was no hint of Pinter in it whatsoever. You got rid of him. Yeah, I'd, I'd edited it out because it's not mine you know away it goes into the bottom drawer for whenever you know so that's a that's a process I've found works best for me but you have to learn the hard way of yet another show that doesn't work because you've done it on spec uh, well that's one I, as I go and look back at it yeah. and say well the, co- the common link between these ones that don't work are I've done them on spec they're very plotty you can kind of see the workings of them there's a lack of heart there's a lack of meaning because at some point I haven't dis- I haven't worked out why I'm writing it right why I'm writing it is because someone's paying me to write it for next march which isn't the same isn't the reason you know you need that's not the point of it and on that one what is what, if you felt do you feel there is a what would you think your role as a playwright is in society and why you should be writing plays something about your story that really engages you can, the it's a tricky one, this one, because I'm not sure you, there is a firm answer to that, and I don't know if I necessarily believe in playwrights that say they have a kind of social function. Um, and it's tied into a kind of political justification of all the arts, you know, that argument for the arts. Why do you do it? How, yep. how does it benefit society? That's very complicated. And I've never really heard an artist give a genuine response to why arts are there in the first place, apart from those who give a negative response. I'm thinking of Oscar Wilde's prologue to Picture Dorian Gray, which all art is useless. That little essay, which is about the best argument for art you can get. W.H. Auden had a line that he used in the Yeats's funeral, which is, poetry makes nothing happen. You know, which is a great line. So when, the, when you're using a negative, we can talk about why art's there. But anything else is this kind of justification of it sounds very difficult, especially when you put it in a social or political 
context. There are many, many of my friends that can do that and can say to their work, I'm highlighting this issue. I'm challenging the audience's perception of this particular type of person. I'm bringing the story to the forefront, so on, so on. Not so much with my work. That stuff gets buried under something else. It is there, I think, but it's not the selling point. Um, the idea of politicians that justifying arts is the problem because they think, how can we justify giving these people this money? But no one in the country wants it justified. You know, 61% of Scotland go to the theatre. 50% of the country vote. What are we worried about? We've got the numbers. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's not something people... Culture is the second most recognisable thing about Scotland to the landscape in a recent survey. It's something that people in, people in Britain think should happen. They don't care. It's only, it's only tabloid journalists, politicians and taxi drivers, you know, they've been in a 12-hour shift who really don't understand why artists are getting public money. Um, so that's one side of why I, I, I would never say what my social role is. The other side is the type, what I mentioned there, the type of plays I write, which is when a writer writes, uh, there are two very horrible questions hovering around you and you can't really engage with them. They're like ghosts. Engage with them and die. But they're there. One is, what's this got to do with me? Why am I writing this story? What's, what's the point in this? To me, why is someone else not doing it? The other one is, why would someone pay and come and see it? Now, that's a theatre question. Why would someone get a babysitter, go for a meal, come out and pay and sit in an uncomfortable seat for two hours watching this? See, if you think about any of those questions for longer than half a second, you will never write again. <laughs> you can't deal with them, but forget it. But they are there somewhere. They are there Um let me see if I can give an example of why, how I make those decisions. Um, the Promises, Promises, I mentioned earlier on. That play was about a retired teacher who was teaching in London. She was brought in to cover sick leave. She was retired. She had a history of being a drunk and a kind of racial controversy hanging over her. But she was just needed for a couple of days, so they, they were desperate. And into her class came a new intake, um, a... I think she was six, from Somalia, a little girl who was an elective mute, who didn't speak. And every week they were bringing in a witch doctor to, in front of the pupils to exorcise her, the demons from her, because um, they thought that's why she wasn't speaking. But it turns out she wasn't speaking because she'd been circumcised back home. She hadn't spoken since then. And the woman then reacted, due to her personal past with her father and everything, she has this incredible theatrical, almost like a Greek tragedy, revenge on this witch doctor character. Now, if someone had said to me, would you like to write a play about female circumcision? I'd have said, absolutely no way. It's got nothing to do with me. That first question, what's it got to do with me? Not that it's not an important thing, and I don't care about it, but how could I write about that? You know, I don't have any authority on it. I have no knowledge about it. But that story was told to me in a pub as a true story from a friend of mine teaching in London that she taught in a primary class where a witch doctor came in every Tuesday and did an exorcism on a little girl who didn't speak and she hadn't spoken since she was circumcised. And that made such an impact on me that it came from my friend. Plus, my mum and my dad were teachers, as I've previously said, you know. Well, my family are all teachers. Even my wife's family are all teachers. Teaching and education are the home store for me, you know. So I, I can write that, and I know I can write that, and I have a certain idea and, and uh, passion about it, so I could see that, right? 
Now, on the other hand, I knew if you if you stacked that story up and withheld the circumcision till later on and played the fact that here's a wee girl that might be possessed by the devil yeah. or might be a witch, that's why people come and see the story. That's the page turner. You, they see it in the blurb. Retired teacher, all this thing, and they see our little girl in primary two might be a witch. And they go, how does that end? How, how does that story unfold? Now, I've seen that play a million times all over the place, and I know for a fact, had I resolved the play supernaturally, they wouldn't have liked it. A theatre audience doesn't want the, that girl to be a witch, but they're there because the story is that. So when it turned, and wait a minute, there's a far bigger picture here, you know, they really engaged with it. it almost like, oh, thank God, a play about a witch, and then thank God, it's not actually about witches. You know, it's the two sides of it. So both of those things are there. Whether I knew that or not when I first started writing it, I don't know. But all I know is you get a little tingle that tells you, oh, this is for me. You know, this is, this is, this is one of mine. This is one of my stories. Where that comes from, I don't know. You know, and some t like, sometimes you, you, read you read the paper, you read magazines, you'll be online, whatever it is, and read all these stories from around the world, and you never think to write about them. And then something in a little story will go, no, this is my... I can write that. I can write that that play. I can tell that story for some reason. And it's often an unquantifiable factor. It's, yeah, just, it's just a feeling. And sometimes I, I split it into A sides and B sides, which is a reference. I've been using this in workshops and wondering why it wasn't getting a response anymore. Kids don't know what an A side and B side is. You know, so it's, a, it's an image that makes no sense to anyone below a certain age. But there's a certain thing where I think, well, that's a main thing. That's a lot of meat in there. There's a, there's a journey to go, there's a turning point and there's an end, there's a third act, there's a reveal and there's an action and all that. And sometimes I think, oh, it's like a little skit. It's a scene, it's a visual thing, you know, and it may be even literally shorter. Now, very often I've got that absolutely wrong. Promises, Promises was a B-side because it was a one-woman show. And I thought, right, that's a wee thing. You know, maybe I'll put it on or more or something like that. I'll ask if they want it or, a, you know, maybe leave it for a cabaret night or something, you know, one of those things. Whereas I would put something like The Mothership or Miracle Man I worked on as an A-side, and which was kind of bolted together with lots of different big ideas, which never had the effect of the B-side, like Man Cub or uh, even Decked as a Bronco or all those, well, almost everything that people like. <laughs> my first impulse was, right, and I'll keep that to myself, or it's, it's a bit small, you know? Don't know why. That's fascinating. That's a really <laughs> wonderful place to finish, Douglas. I want to say thank you so much for spending the last 25 minutes telling us all that. It's Not really at all. Beautiful. Thank you. It's been great to be here. Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>